This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Nearly three quarters of Ontario's doctors are burned out. This according to a new survey from the Ontario Medical Association based on responses from more than 2,600 Ontario doctors, medical students and residents. And the figure is higher than it was in the spring of 2020 when the pandemic was first hitting. Now, physician burnout is characterized by exhaustion and feelings of detachment. It can also lead to depression and substance use. And the OMA warns it may reduce productivity, increase turnover, and possibly decrease patient access to care. These are all very important considerations. I know there are lots of people who have left the professions, and I can tell you that uh, even when I saw one of my doctors, uh, you know, he was basically saying that if he had had any inkling of what it was going to be like, he would have retired somewhat early. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Nadia Alam, a family doctor and anesthetist in Georgetown, Ontario, and former president of the Ontario Medical Association, and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. Doctors, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Libby. Uh, Nadia Alam, it's been ages since we talked. And um, I I think between the two of you, uh, we sort of have set up, there's a difference of uh, practicing in a smaller town where there are probably fewer doctors and in the big city. So, um, Nadia, what's it been like for you and how are you feeling? It's been pretty tough. When the pandemic started, there was this pervasive fear given what had happened in Italy, given what had happened in New York and the UK and Iran and a number of countries and cities around the world. Um, Since then, you kind of got into into that work mode, into uh, almost like you're on a treadmill where you're going through accepting more and more responsibilities because that's what the system needed. That's what patients needed. And so you rose to the challenge, leaving behind personal obligations, time with your family, time for self-care even, and started working more in a system that wasn't ready to handle such a load from patients who were struggling, who were actually very, very sick. And then as the pandemic, as the second wave went, as the third wave went, and now as we're looking at a fourth wave coming, many of us are just exhausted. I myself was burned out earlier this year and had to take time off. And it struck me, I I can't go back to working 80 hours a week. I can barely go back to working 40 hours a week. And right now I am working 40 hours a week week and managing. Uh, It's been been hard. I'm sorry to hear that. I know how hard you work. I've known you for quite a while um, in in multiple roles. And... (laughs) Uh, you know, well, a lot of patients are getting a, a virtual care. Are are you delivering more virtual care, or is it um, your hands-on care? Uh, tell me a little bit about how you've been handling your workload, and and uh, what part of it leads more to burnout. The hospital work has remained all in person. There's no other way to to bring people in for emergency surgeries to take care of critically ill patients, put them on mechanical ventilation, talk to them about what palliative care looks like when mechanical ventilation is not an option. In my family medicine clinic, I've I've been about half and half right through the pandemic, half in-person, half virtual care, because again, there are certain things you can't do virtually, and there are certain things that are appropriate for virtual care. If someone calls me and says, I've got this mole that's changing, I need to bring them in, look at the mole, biopsy the mole. If someone tells me they've got shoulder pain or back pain, 
I need to bring them in and examine their shoulder, examine their back. If someone calls me, especially adolescents, and they're exhausted, they themselves are anxious, depressed, suicidal even, I bring them in because that human connection may help stabilize them. And in fact, many of them have expressed that preference. They don't, they don't want to deal with me virtually. They want to be in the room looking at me with me reaching out and holding their hand. So it's been about half and half. Um, the point that I do want to make, a lot of physicians, along with the heavier workload that we've been dealing with, along with pivoting to virtual care and all the new ways of practicing that we've been dealing with, a lot of us have also dealt with personal tragedies, personal obligations. I myself buried my uncle yesterday. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you. I know physicians whose parents have died, who, whose loved ones have died, and trying to deal with the grief at the same time as an intense workload, at the same time as almost overwhelming patient need, has, has just been exhausting. Uh Dr. Gorfinkel, what are you finding in your uh, practice? Or do pa- your patients need you more as a result of this? It's an interesting mix. Many patients have expressed joy that they can get phone care. But what a lot of them don't realize is that phone care is often poorer care. It's not as good. And why do I say that? Because I'm more likely to order tests tests that I may not have ordered had I been seeing the patient to do a physical examination. That's hugely concerning. So, and what does that do? Ultimately, when there are enough doctors who are ordering more tests that are not necessarily needed, it only increases wait times for people. And that's hugely concerning. We see increased wait times in radiology services. You want to get an x-ray? Well, it's not just a barrier that you have to call for an appointment now. You're also going to have to wait for it longer. And the same is true for ultrasounds. And I'm doing that in part because I lost that physical examination. I have to have patients come in now for a second visit sometimes. Not always, because we have opened up a little bit more to see patients, but this is the aggregate of what's happened. And of course, I terribly miss that personal contact with people. It's a lot harder doing a whole list of phone calls versus actually seeing people I've known for many years and and contacting them with them physically. Do you not do a Zoom at all? Most of it is done by phone. So the problem with Zoom call is trying to run it exactly on time. I'm notoriously bad at that. You know, maybe there are some other doctors who are a little better, but I'm pretty bad at that personally. Most of this is done by the phone. And even when we do connect with, you know, on on video chats, a lot of the time the quality is not there for me to see what I need to see. Skin is actually really hard to see. You know, even in the office, I get them to stand by the light. I've got a magnifying glass. I've got my own glasses. <laughs> so it, it makes a difference. And some patients may say, well, why should, I, why should I care about physician burnout? What difference does it make to me? And I would respond. A JAMA internal medicine article actually looked at this. And what did they find? A twofold increase in safety incidents. We're talking about quality of care. This is why it matters to listeners. Their patient satisfaction goes down. You're dealing with a burned-out doctor. They're much less likely to emotionally connect. Diagnostic errors actually increase as well. Uh, Well, I would imagine it's much harder to uh, increase. And it's interesting, Dr. Allen, that you talked about the mole. I remember trying to take a picture of a mole that I found and sending it to my doctor. Um, And, uh, yeah, it was pretty uh, amusing. But it's not always amusing. You could be dealing with something very serious. Yeah, definitely. I know that. I mean, added to that, a point about the Zoom calls, a lot of patients, don't live in areas where they've got reliable Wi-Fi. A lot of patients don't, or even physicians don't live in areas where there's reliable Wi-Fi. Even in my area, there are patients who are quite rural and they won't have the infrastructure needed to be able to do Zoom calls. Elderly patients, I find, really struggle. And about a third of my practice is elderly patients. Now, to speak to your point about the mold situation, I had a patient who came in recently for a skin exam. Um, She's had a history of atypical moles in the past. And so I tend to bring her back once a year, do a quick, you know, check of all of her moles. 
This time I looked at one and I was like, ah, it's kind of funny. It's probably atypical. Let's biopsy it. I took it off, sent it off to pathology, and it came back as melanoma. Oh. So this is why Dr. Gorfink was absolutely right. We need in-person care. Certain things cannot be done and should not be done by phone or Zoom. You're and on top of it, I'll add, a lot of the quality of care that a person thinks they're getting, they take a photo. So this is uploaded to my chart. These are the patients who can actually do this. So many patients mm-hmm. who are older. And, you know, that number is variable throughout Canada. But in, in many parts of Canada, it's the majority who do not have access. You know, so let's not delude ourselves. It's really difficult for someone who doesn't know how to use a phone or doesn't know how to use the phone to the degree that they can take the photo, then upload it to the private area with the PIN number. There's a lot of steps. And for every step there is, it's a barrier to them getting the care they need. Dr. Allum, let me um, ask you, you saying that most of your patients are older or elderly, and there's an increase in social isolation in that population. So does that uh, kind of angst and sadness, does that kind of transfer to you? Yes, because the best part of medicine is that doctor-patient relationship, that connection, that human connection. I remember seeing the saying once, and I don't know who to attribute it to, wheresoever there is medicine, there is a love of humanity. That kindness, that compassion, that connection, it's this ineffable part of the care we provide that helps us be better doctors, better clinicians, and better diagnosticians. I find my elderly patients struggle from social isolation, and in fact, Some of them are hard of hearing. Some of them have challenges with using phones because of arthritis even. And and so they get their younger kids to help or their grandkids to help. And, uh, And I find sometimes they come in not because they need to, but because it's a connection. They get to get out of their rooms. They have to get out of their houses. They get to be outside, come to a safe area and see me, where we can connect again. I've been doing more house calls lately because, one, it's safer for patients, and, two, seeing them, particularly when they're hard of hearing and actually need me to be close by talking to them, makes a big difference. There's, in fact, one patient, I never book him for a phone visit because he just he cannot do it. And so I bring him in for everything. And in the past, that was very normal, right? That was my day, no matter what, my week, no matter what, but... Now, it's a conscious decision where I have to actually weigh, is this person suitable for the phone? And many times I've had to say, no, they're not suitable for phone care. And, and again, does, does that weigh on you? Yes. I find one of my patients turned to me the other day during the height of the pandemic, during the third wave, actually, during another lockdown. She looked at me and she was like, I'd rather just die of COVID than to deal with this anymore. I I can't deal with being so alone. I haven't seen anybody. I haven't really talked to anybody because on the phone, there's this distance, right? There's this, it, it is distance where people say, how are you? And you automatically say, I'm fine. You don't get into how are you really? And their, their sadness, their isolation, their loneliness, pulls at you because the reason why physicians were chosen to be physicians, they're selected for their empathy in medical school interviews. And that empathy drives your love of medicine, gets you through the hard days. And if you don't have that empathy, if you're burned out, all of a sudden medicine becomes just another job where the risks, where the harms outweigh the benefits. Dr. Gorfinkel, um, do, it, are you affected by uh, any reactions like that? And, and uh, you know, especially if you're talking to patients who are going through tough times emotionally. One of the hardest emotions that I've personally had to contend with is a sense of helplessness. You know, I, it's wonderful to be able to do house calls on patients, and I do but it's far fewer patients than needed. And I recognize that that's a serious shortcoming. I'm one person, as it is, I'm working 70 hours a week. 
um, it's pretty much a seven-day job. And the problem is, I wish I could extend that beauty of the house call. The old-fashioned doctor, the doctor who's connected to her patients for years and years and simply drops everything when needed to go visit. That's so desperately needed right now. And I also believe that house calls reduce burnout in doctors. They pay horribly, you know, Mm because it takes a lot of time to go there. It takes time to see the patients. And, in fact, to some degree, they've even been de-insured, which is very sad. I'm talking by OHIP. It's de-insured by OHIP largely. But, you know, the, the three aspects to the burnout, the physical aspect, you know, the get up and go can be reduced on a physician's part. Fortunately, I haven't had that personally. The emotional part, the compassion, I have found it is harder to sustain the same level of compassion on, to patients on the phone than in person because we miss that interpersonal aspect to it. And, of course, the final part of burnout, the spiritual part, the part of knowing that there's a purpose in your life. You get up and and what you do makes a big difference. Having that purpose gets a lot harder when the work is done primarily by phone. So I look forward to the day when enough people are vaccinated and we have vaccines that are successful enough and variants that aren't overly transmissible so we can return to a semblance of what's normal. Dr. Nadia Alam, uh, what would you like to leave us with? I would tell physicians and patients, burnout can sneak up on you. You may not realize it. You know, you, you may chalk it up to being extra tired. You may chalk it up to being a normal response to being busy, being isolated, having to live a life during a lockdown, having to deal with your kids or your elderly parents, and you can't see them when you can't be with them appropriately, when you can't let them be with their friends and their, and their peers, but it can sneak up on you. And when it does, when it hits full force, it's like a tsunami where you all of a sudden realize you're drowning and there's no one there to pull you out. You're not just treading water anymore. You're literally drowning. And... Dr. Gorfinkel is right. You don't just lose your your get up and go, your motivation to work. You lose your sense of being able to get out of things, being able to reach for help. And you are lost in that despair. And I know it personally and know how it sneaks up on you. And to try and get yourself back is months of work, especially in a system that doesn't support good patient care because you don't have the resources. We're a resource-constrained system. We always have been. It's gotten worse now. And the care you provide is not the care you want to provide. Wow. Um, Thank you so much for being so open about this, both of you, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, Dr. Nadia Alam, and Dr. Alam, again, our sincerest condolences for your loss and, and, and thank you so much for talking to us now. And thank you, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Uh, thanks. What can I Many say? Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for highlighting this issue. Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Free for all Friday is coming up tomorrow and boy, is there a lot to talk about this time. We will talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now we are going to check in with the latest on the controversial Highway 413 project. The Ford government wanted to fast track its environmental assessment for the 413, arguing that the highway is needed to address congestion congestion in the fast-growing GTA. Environmental groups asked the federal government to intervene. It agreed to do that and to assess the environmental impact of the project, which runs through farmland, waterways, wetlands, and Ontario's protected greenbelt. Now, Highway 413 would connect Milton and Vaughan. So what do you think? 416 360 
1-866-740-4740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to welcome Frank Clayton, a senior research fellow at the Center for Urban Research and Land Development at Ryerson University, Todd Letts, CEO of the Brampton Board of Trade, and David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto. Hello and welcome to you all. Hello. Thank uh, you, Libby. Let us begin with David Pr- Crombie. You've been opposed to this project from the get-go. Uh, where do things stand now? Well, uh, best, I, best I understand it right now, uh, the, the federal government is going to carry out an environmental assessment to conclude by 2022. Now, there may be more information that the other two guests may have, but that's what I have. Uh-huh. And uh, are you satisfied with that? Well, I'm willing to go with it, for sure. Uh, I, I still, I mean, I, I'm, I've been against it for good and sufficient reason, but if people think that needs to be another environmental assessment, then I'm, that's, that's, I'm, I guess that's okay, uh, if, if people need it for greater certainty. Uh, Frank Clayton, uh, is that environmental assessment, uh, do you uh, agree with it, and do you think it will be as robust as many people believe it needs to be? Well, I, first of all, don't believe the environmental assessment has to be as robust as maybe it is. The feds probably shouldn't be involved. But what I look at is that Metrolinx, the uh, transit uh, agency for the provincial government, uh, has, has projected over the next, up to the year 2041, there's going to be a 50% increase in car trips at prime time, at rush hour prime times. Uh, that's even with all the billions of dollars of transit spending they're going to do. Two-thirds of the growth in the Toronto region uh, are in the 905 areas. So we need more roads. Otherwise, there's going to be a tremendous increase in congestion. In fact, Metrolink estimates about a 100% increase in congestion over current levels. So we need more roads. And we need... Uh, and the, so... And, and the trips are really east-west, and, and this is so. This road is needed. So, yes, you want to minimize environmental impacts, but that shouldn't stop the road from being built because it's needed. Todd Letts, uh, I gather that is the view of the Brampton Board of Trade as well. Yeah, I mean, we represent uh, everything uh, from small business store owners to those managing uh, distribution centers and tech companies, food processors, you name it. And we're looking at it from both a planning and an economic uh, context and and one of quality of life as well. You know, growth is going to happen. Brampton is a magnet for people. We welcome about 14,000 newcomers uh, every year. You multiply that across the GTA in the next 10 10 years, we're going to have 1.2 million more people. Infrastructure investment just hasn't kept up with citizens' expectations, and uh, and neither have jobs. And uh, we see the highway as uh, an opportunity to address, uh, you know, the uh, quality of life for the 152,000 people that wake up every morning and have to drive outside of our city to uh, to, to find uh, work. So uh, this is uh, the highway. I think is a boost. Uh, I think the estimate is about a billion dollars annually to our GDP. And uh, you know, your, the context of the federal government's involvement. It, it just, just delays the job creation that Brampton uh, citizens so uh, so sorely need. David Crombie, how do you respond to those arguments? Well, uh, I think the municipalities, the larger municipalities en route and certainly around the area, uh, all oppose it. Um, uh, that's true of the city of Mississauga. Uh, that's uh, true of the city of Vaughan. True of the city of Toronto Council. Uh, I think Brampton Council as well, and certainly Brampton's. Uh, Vision 2040, which is a major planning uh, projection of, for their, their own, uh, they are depending on less car dependence, less car dependency, uh, and and more public transit. So the the, the ecological sustainability of, of Hamilton, as well as its economic viability, is very much caught up in that 2040 document, and and the building of the of the 413 flies in the face of that. I'm going to take a couple of calls uh, from listeners who are basically saying, what about the 407? Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Libby. Um, Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I've spoken on this subject a couple of times, and one day I was even uh, finished driving on the 407. This was a Friday, and I commented at that time that um, the 407 is completely underutilized 
There was the one day I drove it from the 401 to 407 all the way out to the very end. Now, the only time I saw any significant tractor trailers on this road, let alone cars, was from the 400 out to the 407 as the trucks were heading west. And even at that, there was probably, I'm going to, I've got notes here somewhere, I'm trying to drive right now, would have been 16 or 17 trucks. Now, I was going eastbound, and Libby, without a word of a lie, there was three tractor trailers. That's one, two, three tractor trailers on the eastbound 401 between the 407 and the 418. Now, my thought is, if they want to get the trucks off the 401, cut down the pollution, the elephant in the room is why don't they offer tax subsidies if they won't at least take off the tolls for the trucks. Okay, thanks, Ron. Let's go to Fred in Oakville. Hi, Fred. Hey, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, previous caller kind of stole my thunder there. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a it's a complete fiasco, the the fact that the 401 is, is jammed and the 407 is completely empty almost and uh, well the the 407 costs a lot of money to use it does and, and that's what's preventing so many other people from using it and uh, that's where they need to really uh, make things right is to reduce uh, the amount of uh, tolls that are paid it's crazy okay fred thanks for that uh frank clayton what do you well, say to that okay well first of all the, the 407 is a privately owned uh, road and people go on it because they go fast. They pay a lot of money and they want fast speed. They don't want to sit in the traffic in the 401 or the 404 and so on. So that, that's that's a gimme. Now you're not going to change that unless you op- unless you buy it from the <laughs> the consortium and you'll have to pay many many more billions of dollars in what the, the new road would would cost. The pension uh, fund uh, owns it now, does it not? <laughs> What's that? Sorry. So it's owned by a pension fund now. Yes, it's owned by. Well, it's owned by different. There's there's, different, uh, there's three or four different owners in it. But the Canada Pension Plan is is one of the owners. Yeah. Well, yeah. They, they're they're to, they're there to maximize money, like everybody else who makes investments. They're there to maximize the money, and uh, so the, the road is uh, meant to go fast. Now, uh, I was at the open house, uh, the virtual open house of the last um, uh, four seventeen team, four thirteen team. And they made it very clear that even if the uh, 407 was opened up, and, and they would still need the 413. The traffic volumes are growing so fast. 50% growth between now and uh, 2041 in car traffic. And that is after, this is Metrolink's numbers, not mine. And that was after all the transit investments. Uh, but by the way, the transit investments basically go downtown. Very little of it is actually being made out, out in the 905 areas. And all the transit investment is doing is keeping up with growth. It's not there's not enough investment, not enough increasing capacity to allow to allow more people to, to get out of cars into uh, into um, into transit because it's just all it's doing is keeping up with growth because we're growing so fast, hundred thousand people a year in this region, uh, uh, and we did, we need both. We need lots of transit too, but we need roads too. David Crombie, do you see a possible solution uh, with the four hundred seven? Well, uh, certainly the. The, a more creative use of uh, 407, as, as your listeners have been pointing out, uh, is in the offing. And, and that was part of the, the thinking of the 2018 uh, review of all of this. And that review is an independent review that said that the 413 was unnecessary and would not bring forward the benefits that people talk about. So uh, and, and, and that a, a more creative use of 407 was the way to go. You have to remember that the amount of money that's going to be invested in 413, uh, somewhere between 6 and $8 billion, it keeps moving, but that's the figures people use. For it's now. <laughs> for, for now. Um, and that's, that's the, those are the figures that people use. Look at where that money could go if you didn't spend it uh, on, on 413. I mean, people are looking more and more for affordable housing, long-term care facilities, green infrastructure, necessity for design and building and, and climate change. I mean, there's an abundant number uh, of, of issues that need to be, or, or causes that need to be funded. And, and to spend six to $8 billion on 413 is just a waste of money. And uh, what about the environmental aspect of it? I mean, even if it passes an assessment, I know that environmental groups think it'll be very harmful. Oh, uh, I, I, and I, have, I, I haven't even mentioned that, Libby. The fact of the matter is 
it's going to bring enormous ecological damage uh, to the area. And, and that, if you're looking, I didn't invent that either. I mean, uh, if you want to look at the report of the Conservation Authority, um, they, they listed it. It's an amazing story of environmental wreckage in order to get a road that's not necessary. Let's hear from Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Thanks for taking my call, Libby. Uh, if we just putting the environmental aspects of it aside, which have been adequately addressed, in my opinion, uh, that $8 billion that, and David Crombie touched on this, would that not be better spent on transit, uh, which is, what, from what I understand, is supposed to be the way of the future, particularly given the challenges of, of climate change? And uh, one more comment is we know that parts of the 401 and known are the Veterans Highway. I would suggest if this road gets built, we should name it the Developers Highway. And those are my comments. Okay. Dave in St. Catharines. Boy, a lot of calls on this. Oh, yeah, of course there are. Uh, we're not even talking to the environmental. Is that, uh, if, you, if you ever take a drive up that way, uh, in that area, and I go up that way all the time, ride my motorcycle and that, it's going to be devastating to that 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 part of the part of of Ontario. But other than that, we built the four hundred seven. We gave it away for less than we paid to build it, and now they say that it's going to cost a billion dollars to buy it back. Well, no, we gave it to them, basically, and. What's going to happen with the 413 is the same thing. We're going to build it. We're going to give it away to a private company and for less than we're paying for We're paying to build it. Okay, Dave. Thanks for that. Yeah, people are still angry about that 407 deal, which goes back to Mike Harris. Um Frank, uh, sorry, not Frank, Todd Letts, uh, you, what do you say to those concerns? Libby, uh, I've been listening intently to your callers, and let, let's ask this question. What happens if it doesn't get built? You're still going to have 1.2 million people coming to the GTHA over the next 10 years, and you wouldn't, uh, you got to find houses for those folks, and that's going to be the problem. You wouldn't have the Brampton is looking for of jobs and uh, people. Uh, the highway is a catalyst for uh, attracting uh, employers from around the world. And we're in a, a, a global war here on attracting talent and attracting uh, investment. We take a look at the uh, uh, 403, for example, in Oakville, it bisects uh, Oakville. You've got uh, name brand uh, 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 companies there, the head offices of Aviva, of WSIB, of uh, Siemens, etc. We need a rebalancing. That is the important economic context. And we need to give the citizens of Brampton and all along the corridor choice, a choice. Uh, the stra- If we don't build this highway, what's uh, the environmental impact of the 152,000 people and more uh, as they come to Brampton that have to drive so far to their uh, jobs? What's the health impact? Uh, impact on the stress and trying to pick up kids. I think we need, and and I I support that the province seems to be listening to parents and planning to the day-to-day realities of parents. It's a, it's a better, it's a plan for people as opposed to a plan for planners or politicians. Okay. Merrick in High Park. Hello, Merrick. Yes, good day, Libby. Actually, I was so lucky that I took 407 last Monday coming back from Kashobe from yeah, region, Polish region. But um, Libby, the problem is, I've mentioned, Canada is the second largest, largest country in the world. Ontario is, um, he, you can fit in few European countries. And some of the, with respect to our mayor, David Crombie, whom I like in person, um, his uh, opinion is uh, outdated. He thinks that he's running city of Toronto. But this is the province of Ontario. And um, the business depends on highways. And uh, forget about the um, public transportation. This is the huge country. So Europe is um, 
much smaller the distances and very higher population. In Ontario, we have what 40 million people, and we can you can fit I believe Poland, France, and um, Germany into Ontario. Oh, so my point. Oh, we lost him. Uh, and we are basically out of time. Uh, those were fighting words, so I'm going to give David Crombie the last word on this. Well, thank you very much, Libby. And uh, uh, let me let me say, first of all, that one should keep, keep in mind three things. An independent review three years ago said it's not necessary. Secondly, if you're looking to find solutions with highways, a more imaginative use of 407 is clearly in order. Thirdly... Um, when it comes to Brampton, Brampton has decided that it wants to move forward with its new vision 2040. And that vision is, is one that says we want to be less car dependent. We want to be, have greater ecological sustainability. And we want to make sure uh, that we've got an opportunity for people there. And they are opposed to it. So these are really important things to keep in mind. And finally, if you've got $8 billion to spend, I'm telling you, there's a there's a, a, a crying need for it in affordable housing, long term care, green infrastructure, and climate change, and that would be, I think, what people might want to keep in mind. All right, thank you very much for that. This is an ongoing issue that we will revisit from time to time, and uh, as you can see, there are some very differing opinions on it. And I thank you for that, Todd Letts, Frank Clayton, and David Crombie. Thanks. Thank you, Libby. Thank, thank you, Libby. Right. We are taking another break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about a disturbing survey on physician burnout that was released by the Ontario Medical Association. And it says that nearly three quarters of our doctors are burnt out. And it was a problem before the pandemic, but the pandemic made it a lot worse when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Opposition parties are calling it a scam. Ontario's PC party is under fire for sending fundraising letters mocked up as invoices. It went out to previous donors. The word invoice is in bold at the top. It has a line item with an amount designated, presumably the amount that was donated the last time, and another line near the bottom that says balance due just like an invoice. And the opposition wants the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, the OPP, and Elections Canada to investigate. The Anti-Fraud Centre is deciding if a criminal investigation is warranted. The worry, of course, is that vulnerable people will be misled into giving money. Not to mention that this is all angering the people that the conservatives are looking to for support. So what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, I welcome Liberal MPP and Consumer Affairs critic Stephen Blay. Hello. Good afternoon. So, uh, what what did you make of this when you first noticed it? Well, you know, it was it was quite shocking actually that a political party would stoop to such a low level to try to to raise money uh, from their from their supporters. You know, we've seen a lot of scams during COVID, trying to, to take advantage of the most vulnerable people as they've uh, been home and been in some of the the most difficult financial situations of their lives. But really, this is an all time uh, new low. Unfortunately, though, it fits into a well-established pattern of conservative deceit uh, tactics and, and dirty tricks. If you look at the return, the return mailing address on the invoice is actually the same address that's associated with a conservative vendor uh, who is behind the robocall scandal uh, that people might remember. And so this is um, 
unfortunately, they've gone back to their old uh, dirty tricks. Uh, that, yeah, I'm uh, seeing that it well, is. We're well the- aware of. It's the responsive marketing group and uh, yeah. that the conservatives, this is something sent out by the NDP. <clears throat> they paid them uh, almost $1.1 million for fundraising and uh, other amounts for outreach or what they called outreach. So this was a, a fundraising thing. Now, uh, it was reported that off the record, Doug Ford is really ticked off by this. Uh, is it, in your opinion, possible that this went out from the party without him signing off on it? Well, look, I don't think it's it. it I don't think that the leader is necessarily signing off on every uh, tiny piece of uh, detail that happens within a within a political organization. But at the end of the day, the leader is responsible for everything that the political organization, the political political party does. You have to hire vendors if you're hiring vendors uh, that have a good moral compass that are going to uh, not only abide by what is uh, actually in the law, but abide by what everyone believes to be uh, in good taste and of high moral standing. I think it's pretty clear that this uh, mailer was intended to uh, make the person receiving it, believe that they owe the Progressive Conservative Party uh, money uh, in an attempt to get money from them for their fundraising. Uh, it's clearly deceitful. Uh, and unfortunately, it's just one more uh, piece of evidence that uh, Doug Ford's Conservative Party is reverting to those dirty tricks uh, of Stephen Harper's Conservatives. Okay, hang on. Let us bring in Greg Geese. And he received one of those letters. Hello, Greg. Thanks for joining us. Hello, I'm glad to join you. When did you get the letter, and and what did you make of it? Uh, The letter arrived on Tuesday, and um, uh, well, it had in big red letters, important invoice enclosed under the PC logo, and uh, as I was opening it, I said to my wife, this is going to be good. (laughs) And uh, I opened it up, and sure enough, it was formatted as an invoice that I owed money to uh, the Progressive Conservative Party. So, How much did you uh, owe them? $800. Wow. Was that the amount wow. of your last donation, if I may ask? Um, I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. I haven't donated uh, money to the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario for probably about a decade now or more. Oh. Wow. Uh, so... Um you know, uh, I mean, what did what did you think? Well, I <laughs> I thought well, this this looks like a scam, and I thought, well, I, I took a look at the the rest of the um, uh, information in the uh, envelope. There was a letter uh, signed by Tony Mila um, explaining that uh, the PC party wanted uh, money to build a fund for to fight the next election to uh, stock their war chest. And uh, that essentially said this is the reason for the invoice, and uh, then the letter went on and on and on, like most political donation solicitations do, and um, mentioned the word invoice a couple more times throughout the body of the letter. Um, I looked at it, I was ready to throw it out, to be honest with you, but um, Laura... Um, looked at it and said, my goodness, that looks Trumpian. And um, so she took a picture of it and posted it on Twitter. And now we have um, apparently a lot of people that received the same letter and uh, a lot of outrage about it. Well, um, the Trump campaign did did something uh, I probably similar. Uh, what they did was that they they... Uh, would send out these uh, fundraising things with the repeat donation part checked. And Mm -hmm. unwitting people would have their bank accounts, uh, you know, uh, would have it deducted from their bank accounts every month or whatever the interval was. Now, uh, Stephen Blay, in the United States, when there was an investigation of this, the Republicans ended up refunding a lot of these donations. Do you think uh, that could happen here, or is this fundraising letter too fresh, and there's been so much publicity about it that it's it's unlikely that they'll actually get anything out of it? Well, uh, obviously, I, I don't know how much money they've raised uh, off of this particular fundraising tactic, 
or other tactics. They may have been doing similar activity for a long period of time, and it's just being revealed now. We just don't know. That's one of the reasons why we've called for an investigation, both from Elections Ontario, as well as the Anti-Fraud Centre, and, and from the OPP. Certainly, I think any money that is collected through this uh, particular uh, campaign or anything that is similarly deceitful should be returned uh, to the donor, uh, in addition to a, a formal apology from uh, from Doug Ford. He needs to stand up in front of television cameras and explain why his party believes that deceitful tactics like this are are acceptable and, and take responsibility for it. Uh, Greg Geese, I mean, we've had a report that off the record, Doug Ford is really ticked about this. Uh, does, does that solve it for you? Well, I don't know if it's solves it, but I'm certainly, um, (laughs) I'm certain that he is ticked about it. Um, The um, reaction to this fundraising letter, uh, or invoice, or whatever you want to call it, um, is going to be damaging to him, his his, uh, reputation, uh, his party. Um, So, yeah, I'm, I'm certain he is ticked. Now, uh, the other side of the coin is uh, somebody in his organization should have had better judgment than to send this out. Well, uh, uh, Mr. Mila is uh, he's he's the head of the party. Uh, let's see what ex- his exact uh, title is, and and you would think, I mean, it, it seems pretty, I don't know, amateurish. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Stephen Blay, my understanding is that Elections Canada does not have jurisdiction to look at fundraising. Is, is that right, or do you think they have the jurisdiction? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as I understand it, I saw a quote from Elections Ontario last evening that says they don't review the contents of, of fundraising uh, solicitations. But that's also why we've asked for the OPP as well as the anti-fraud center to, to look into it. Uh, it's, it. It may be likely that there is no specific election law saying that this activity isn't, uh, uh, you know, banning this kind of activity because no one thought that anyone would stoop this low. Uh, and, and typically many of our laws are written to try to combat things that unfortunately have happened in the past. Uh, so it, it may, Elections Ontario and the various uh, bodies that we've asked to investigate will make their own determinations. But uh, I think what's quite clear is that it doesn't pass the smell test. Anyone who I've spoken to has seen this, who's taken, who's who's looked at it, who sees the fact that it says important uh, invoice inside, that balance due, that it is invo- invoice. I think there's, I think there's language on it that says pay today. Um, yep. You know, clearly it is intended to make uh, the person receiving it believe that they owe money. Uh, to the PC party. And we've, we've heard other reporting last evening, telephone conversations between reporters and, and those that received it. Some uh, believed it. And there, I believe there was other reporting where some were, you know, almost close to actually sending the money. And so again, any money that was collected through this campaign should be returned immediately. The leader of the party, who is the premier, needs to stand up in front of the television camera and, and apologize. And we need uh, the proper authorities to do a fulsome investigation so we can know how long this kind of uh, dirty fundraising tactic or other dirty tactics uh, the PC party in Ontario has been employing as we prepare for, for the election in June. Okay, let us take a call from Annette in Scarborough. Hello, Annette. Hi, Libby. Okay, yes, I am totally against this. I am ticked. Um, first of all, I don't believe this is the time for an election. But having said that, um, this kind of um, um, invoice sending is immoral, unethical, and deceitful. And it definitely targets the older um, seniors. My dad is one that is susceptible to anything legal of appearance sent through the mail. So he has fallen for that kind of scamming before. Um, I'm not saying that I'm totally immune to this kind of tactic either. Um, And I think Doug Ford, um, I've always had great respect for him, but, um, you know, I think he should come forward and apologize for his party and uh, tell the people that this is not a legal um, invoice and not to pay it. Um, Yeah, we have to wait and see. Uh, Sometimes he takes his time to do the right thing, shall we say, but uh, the 
off the record word is that he's ticked about it. And Annette, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad you pointed out that your dad is susceptible to this. Yeah, there and, are and lots like I said, of. I have fallen for shit like that too. So, so excuse my language. Um, you know, um, if it's legal uh, in in appearance and it seems to be coming from the government, you kind of take a back and and you think, oh my god, what is this all about? You know. Okay, Annette. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, yeah, there are uh, people who are vulnerable. Now, I gather that the Anti-Fraud Center is looking at whether it warrants a criminal investigation. It, it might be, uh, you know, on the line with that. Greg Geese, do you have a view? Well, I I would think that before that letter was sent out, um, the lawyers for the Progressive Conservative Party would have vetted it. Um so I, I think it, I, I think it does touch the boundaries of um, what is legal and what is not. Um, I, I feel it's certainly not ethical at all, um, but it could be interpreted as well as um, a fraud or, or an extortion, uh, the way the whole thing was formatted and, and delivered. And uh, I'm just reading that under federal law. And, and who knows if that applies here, the solicitations by mail regulations require anything that looks like an invoice but isn't to have a warning in boldface capital letters that the recipient is not required to pay. Stephen Blay, I mean, all of this is uh, pretty confusing. It is very confusing, and, and I'm not a lawyer, but if, if, if the statement that you just read is, in fact, uh, what uh, needs to be followed when you're putting something to Canada Post. I imagine uh, all these letters were delivered uh, by Canada Post. I think it really goes back to the kind of culture that Doug Ford and those around him create within the PC party. Um, they've hired a vendor who has a notorious track record of dirty tricks. You know, they got caught red-handed during the robocall scandal to the Stephen Harper's Conservatives uh, back in the day. They've, they've chosen to go with this vendor even after this history of dirty tricks. And guess what? They're playing dirty tricks again. It, it goes to the culture created in the organization uh, by the leadership of the organization. That goes right back to Doug Ford. Greg Geese, I'm going to give you the last word. If uh, Doug Ford apologized for this, would that uh, make everything okay for you? Um, I I really don't think so. Uh, an apology is fine, but I'm my concern is with the tone and tenor of this, and, and increasingly uh, the fundraising solicitations tend to get more extreme. Um, in a way that, that doesn't inspire confidence in our politics and our politicians. And that's dangerous if we lose faith in our political system and our institutions. Yeah. Okay, a lot to think about there. Thank you so much, Greg Geese, who received one of these fundraising letters, and uh, Stephen Blay at Queen's Park. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Welcome. Thank you. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to catch up on the latest with that controversial Highway 413 project when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.